Hey, St. Paul, welcome to episode 22 on our study on the Holy Spirit. Today, Emily Trotter is with me again, and we are just so happy. You know, I, I shouldn't say with me. I mean, this is this has really been something that we're doing together. Yes, but you say again, like again, she's here. Should I start it over? <laughs> no. Okay. No, it's too late for that. It's too late for that. But we are so glad that you have joined us and are um, studying alongside of us. Uh, during this journey, uh, it's it, it was birthed out of a desire that had been just tugging at both of our hearts about the Holy Spirit. I talked to someone yesterday who, maybe it was Wednesday, we did this drive-by, it sounds so weird, drive-by <laughs> Ash Wednesday in position of the ashes. They just had to slow down, right? And we got a nerf. Throw them out? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, stay, remain in car for safety. And But anyways, she mentioned how much she has been enjoying this. And she said, man, I just love the Holy Spirit. I just, mm. I just think the Holy Spirit is the forgotten part of the triune in yes. today's culture. Mm-hmm. And it was just really encouraging, really exciting to hear that there are other folks like us. This is not something that is forgotten. And I was just looking at our demographics. We're reaching about 8,000 people now, 8,000 people uh, around the world. Now, look, there's 7 billion people in the world. So 8,000 yeah, hey, that's 8, really 8,000 cool. to me is a lot. Right. We're in 27 <laughs> different countries that people are, are listening. And, uh, and certainly want to mention that if you would like to reach out to us, feel free to. And you can do so by uh, emailing podcast at spumcolumbus.com. Uh, we'll put that all in our show notes before we publish it. It's been a while since we've been together, and I have missed sitting across the table from you. I have missed it, too. You're just saying that. I was, no, I was lost last week. I was like, oh, now what do I do? I have a whole day. Sheesh, I don't have any activity today. (laughs) (laughs) What am I going to do to fill my time? Gosh, I guess I'll have another cup of coffee. (sighs) Today, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that Emily uh, had uh, alluded to in her Bible study um, that she distributes and films and um, leads on the book of Titus. If you would like to watch it live, uh, she records on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Uh, 10-ish. 10-ish. 10-ish, a.m.-ish. <laughs> you can just pop on to her Instagram, which is Emily B. Trotter. Emily B. Trotter. Come on and, over. Yeah, come on over and see it. And uh, it's also edited and distributed on our website, uh, spumcolumbus.com. And that's probably more visually appealing. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I don't know. Teresa works at it. Yeah, well, she, she God does. God bless ex- Teresa. Teresa works at it and makes it look better. We're going to look at a passage in Second Peter, as I mentioned, that is dovetailing to what uh, Emily taught about this past Wednesday. And so Emily set the stage for us, what brief connection that Titus makes to this, and then set the stage for us. So we were getting into the chapter two of Titus, and Paul is telling Titus to, you know, after knowing the sound doctrine, teach them this. And then it, it calls the the members of the church, the believers, to, you know, old men do this. Old women. It doesn't say old women, does it? Yes, it does. The older women of the church. And then the younger men. And it kind of gives us a 
description of what what we're supposed to be doing in the church amongst each other with in our fellowship with believers. And I just really wanted to find some other cross references to that as well. And, you know, because Paul says that to all of his letters is what I've been going through and, and looking at. I mean, it's very similar wording and phrases. And of course, ideas that he's trying to get across to all of these churches that he's written to. And so I really wanted to kind of get a different author saying the same thing. And so I ended up in Second Peter. And, and so I read, I was like, yes, this is perfect. Peter is telling this group of believers the same thing that Paul was. So this really kind of solidifies it and, and makes it concrete. And then I got to the end, I got to, what is it, verse 10. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to talk about that. <laughs> So that's how I ended up randomly there. And I can't even remember how the passage came up on my radar. I can't even remember what rabbit hole I was in that I, I ended up in Second Peter. And so I was like, huh, this is interesting. How did I get here? And now what do I do? And so this thought has just been in my mind since, you know, in preparation for, for going into Titus 2 on Wednesday. And so I... So, Emily, the, I'm going to read the verse. It's, it's uh, 2 Peter 1.10. And what's interesting about this verse is, is that I think the apprehension inside of you that, you know, kind of made you kind of recoil back a little bit is an unfortunate thing that we all find ourselves doing. The verse reads like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And I would imagine that that uh, where you recoiled, and it's not me imagine, because this is the conversation we had a few days ago, the recoil was the wording that says your calling and election. And over the years, Emily, unfortunately, people have gone to the mat for non-essential theology. Now, look, I, I have a lot of respect for theologians and ministers and, and Bible teachers and Sunday school teachers and all types of people um, that have some really deep-rooted theological beliefs and stuff like that. But what I truly believe that there are certain things in Scripture theologically that God gives us permission to be okay that we think differently on these. Right. So like predestination or like election. And, and we're not going to get into the differences because where the differences fall are, are non-essential. Right. Many, it has divided the church. Many yeah. factions have been formed because of this. Uh, in my tradition of the United Methodist Church and Wesleyan theology, there was a separation between John Wesley and George Whitfield to the point where they separated ways. They, they parted ways and, and their divided ministry, some would, historians would say it had this effect, but it had this, uh, this deficit that was a part of it because they weren't together and they weren't doing these things. To be honest with you, even as a Wesleyan, I can go either way when it comes to election because I think there are passages of Scripture that are so crystal clear. And there's other passages that are so crystal clear that if any doesn't mean anyone then I don't know what anyone means. Right. So, so there's this tension in it, which makes theological study so exciting for me. But where it goes too far 
is that it brings us to a point of division. It brings us to a point of creating factions. And I appreciate those who think differently from me tie this really closely to the sovereignty of God. And that if people have a choice, then they are actually diminishing or decreasing the value of the sovereignty of God. And, and, and I don't believe that that is actually the case. Um, A.W. Tozer wrote a good piece on this, um, on the opposite, that God willingly and sovereignly releases his control of the human heart. Dallas Willard talks about that and, and other theologians about that. So where I will go to the mat for is probably more centered around the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And those are where I'll make very sharp distinctions, clear lines in the sand. But I I get, I mean, stopping at election and those who are called, uh, that is a uh, a very real thing that happens for a lot of people. But what happens when we recoil back is we miss a bigger message that the passage is saying. Right. And I like what's being said here um, in this passage, that the therefore, this is the causation. This is now because I've said all this, this is the this is the effect goes from cause to effect. This is what's supposed to happen. It says, therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm. Right. To confirm your calling or your election or your faith or what you believe to confirm um, your understanding of, of God. And this is something that we see throughout scripture as an exhortation of something that we need to do. Yeah. Now he tells us how to confirm. First John talks about, you can have assurance of salvation. You can have this assurance. You don't have to wonder why. And one of the things that Peter is doing here that kind of paralleling that is he's telling you, this is, this is how you know. This is how you can confirm that faith. And, and he says, be diligent, be diligent about it. Yeah. Well, that's the context of this. And I think that's where we get into messes and arguments and division is we take so many things out of context. And when you read verse 10 on its own, you kind of can go, oh, what? But if you go back and read starting in verse three, what they've already said, and then verse nine says, for whoever lacks these qualities, which he's listed, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter is saying, you know all these things, you used to live this way, now you're not, and so now you need to do be this. And it's like you've forgotten that you've been sprinkled clean with through the blood. Therefore, don't forget. <laughs> That you need to be, be diligent. Yeah, be diligent. You got to do this so that you don't. And so that is really important. And then I think that because I, you know, I don't have your fancy. And I really wish yesterday I was like, gosh, I need that that software that John has so I can put chosen in and see all the references. So all I had was my little concordance in the back of my Bible. And it's not exhaustive. So I just... Because when I went, like one of the words were chosen is, is in John when he's talking to the disciples. And I was like, okay, but Jesus is talking to the disciples here. Right. Where he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Well, 
if we take that verse out of what Jesus is saying, it sounds completely different than what he meant in that. Because he's talking to the disciples who he did choose yeah, to come with him. Out. Yes. Who he said, hey, you come with me. Put down your nets and come with me. Where he called those men to him. So he did choose them. But taken out of that, we say, oh, well, we don't choose God. He chooses us. So I just really got to, and you know, that's the other thing. The more you know, the more you get confused, right? For me, it is. Because... Um, and y'all, and I, I have lots of pastors in my phone that I just text stuff to. <laughs> you mean I'm not the only one? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I'm never going to read those again. No, I don't send everybody <laughs> pictures of books like I send you, John. <laughs> yes. So, but, you know, because a friend of mine, Bill Shorey, Gave, he said, Emily, you need to read the church history. You need to study up on this. If you're going to, if you want to, you know, be this, oh, I hate to use the word preacher. Um, I guess tele-evangelist suits me better for my, my live <laughs> <laughs> teachings on Titus um, on Instagram. But he's like, if you're going to get it, if you really want to do this, you need to study up on this church history. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I do. I really am interested in, you know, in how things were set up and what the historical background is on things. And because I always do that when I start a study, I always want to know what's going on in the cities, like all the places that Paul writes. I want to know what those cities were like. I want to know what's going on there. I want to know culturally where it is and, and all those sorts of things. So he, he recommended this book to me, which is interesting. But, and when we got to, when it got to the chapter and I'm not very far into it, I don't, I don't want y'all to think that I've like all of a sudden read this <laughs> several thousand page book. I have not, I'm still like in the Page two? Yeah, maybe 27. <laughs> maybe 27. I'm very early on. But it, we've already talked about the the canon and the Bible and how the books were chosen. And, and you know, I've been such a firm believer of the Bible is an inerrant and it's infallible. And it was spoken. It says that it is, you know, God breathed, that the Holy Spirit worked with these writers. And I believe that. However, when you read about the way that it goes through that these books were chosen, you go, where was the Holy Spirit in that? It's just a bunch of guys over here arguing. <laughs> that doesn't count. Uh-uh. We're not putting that in there. No, that's not going in there. So it really kind of, not that I, not that it discounts the word any to me, because it has been to me so impactful and so helpful. And I really believe, you know, for Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. I really believe that because I think that it is a living thing. But when you look at how involved humans have been in the translations and the way that it's lined up and the way that it's put together and what got in and what didn't, then you see, a, oh, well, maybe this sentence didn't go here with this. How am I supposed to know? How do I, no wonder we're confused. So the more you know, the more you know, but the more you know, the more you go, what? Is this right? So now I have that in the back of my head all the time of, well, I'm confused by this because I have a hard time. I don't, I don't 
the chosen, the elect, the predestination, what I have a hard time with doesn't have anything necessarily to do with the sovereignty of God, but what my relationship with the Lord and who the God that I know he is, it doesn't match up with what I know myself of how he would choose people and then just leave us on this planet to do, to live our lives. And then some people he chose and some people he didn't. That just doesn't go along with how I look at the Lord. And I mean, maybe I'm wrong and maybe that's naive, but, and I don't believe that he's just a, yes, God is love. God is, but he's also just. And he also, the Bible talks about his wrath and it talks about how our judgment is coming. And he, you know, and and he's got this angry part to him when we don't follow the statutes that he has. And I mean, you really see this more in the Old Testament than you do in the New Testament. But yes, he has all those attributes and those qualities. But I think his love and hope and grace outweigh them because the example is that he said is he sent a son. Yeah, Romans 5, 8 says, and God demonstrated his love in this way that while yeah. we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that was at the culmination of the first part of Romans where Paul is actually describing what you're talking about. Yeah. He does talk about God's wrath, but he talks about it from the perspective of, perspective of the wrath withheld. That yeah. what we deserve is this, but the grace yes. is, is that he's withholding this. Right. He's withholding this wrath. And and um, and I and 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 that begins to give us this perspective. I look at it as, man, I'm looking at my children, and I and I and I say, you know, I know that this is a right decision that you should make in this circumstance, but I have to let them live into it. And if they don't make that right decision that I have, that they have asked and I have counseled them on or given them some advice on, there's a frustration. There's, there's a, there's, there's a frustration that, that, that kind of bubbles up in here. And I, you know, I want to come out and say, well, I told you so. Yeah. I want, I want to say that, but I, but I don't, of course, all all the time. (laughs) Well, sometimes. Well, sometimes. (laughs) And, and so it's this, it's this sense of, of the wrath of God that is withheld, and this becomes the gracious nature of a God that we serve. And it's the same uh, how God acted in the Old Testament. I mean, how yeah. many times is there withheld wrath? Ugh. How many times is there withheld wrath of, of the Israelites, even people outside the covenant, yeah. like Job, over and over again? And God is just, I mean— how many chapters in Job and God finally gives his point of view in the Atlas. Where have you been when I was laying the foundation and have you ever seen the storehouses with snow? I mean, you have no understanding. It's really God saying, well, I'm telling you now, I'm telling you, you don't have that right vantage point. You, you don't have that right perspective. Yeah. And, And so if we look at, a little from a different perspective of what Peter's saying here, um, I think we can find ourselves a little bit encouraged in that verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm. I did do a little study on that word confirm, because if I'm told to do something, I'm going to make sure I understand what it means. Now, in my vernacular, in our culture, confirm would be something about uh, sending an email back saying, I got your message. Or if I order something from Amazon, I 
I get a confirmation, right? Yeah. And, and really kind of gives us an idea of, okay, they got it. If I'm speaking to someone, I get a confirmation by eye contact, or if I'm preaching, I'll get a little bit of nonverbal communication, head nods, head nods and stuff like that. And confirmation of someone sleeping. I mean, that is a confirmation. <laughs> there is some, some, ver- so John, that never happens. I've never seen that. <laughs> never seen that before. Not when you were preaching, no. Because uh, on the pulpit, we have buttons and <laughs> where people are sitting. It's kind of like a shock seat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? On April Fool's, I think y'all need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you like that. Nothing, oh, gosh. Nothing for Holy and Spirit. Then, and then you say, that's the Holy Spirit right there, guys. Holy Spirit, amen. In the vernacular or the culture of first century, confirm would be centered around building. It's fixed. It's certain. It's sure. And if you think of a house, um, Jesus talks at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 7 that, look, you know, person who has ears, let him hear. The person who hears these words and, and um, does does not heed them or live into them is like a man who builds his house on the sand. And he contrasts that to the person who, man who builds his house on a rock. And yeah. when the storms come, the house on the rock remains and the house on the sand gets swept into the sea. And so the connection here is this, this word has a a connection to a foundation that a house is built upon. And so what he is encouraging us to do to be very diligent about is to confirm this, this faith, this calling or election. And and no matter what starting point you come from, we can all agree on the sense that this is something about our faith, what God has done for us through the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. The empty tomb today, this is built upon that. So we confirm, we build upon that. And then he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. In verse five, where he starts this all, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Okay. Now, if we, in the context of this, this thought, it kind of leads into verse 10 to confirm. And then it goes down to verse 12. We'll talk about that in a second. But make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, notice just from that point there, it is something that God is not doing for you. It is not something that a minister is doing for somebody else or a Bible teacher or something like that. This is, he is speaking to the saints or to the Christians, to the, the, the people of God. And he's saying, make every effort, something we do to supplement your faith. Now it's not, it's not that we supplement it to, to add to it. No, this is a supplement that actually walks alongside of that to bring us to this point where we can confirm. Okay, our faith is the foundation, what we believe, what God has done. And then this supplementation is what we do to build upon it with virtue. And then he goes through this list, virtue to knowledge, self-control, to steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, to love. And those are all external and internal things. That is where the rubber meets the road with this list. In the midst of anger, 
in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of being around someone in need and seeing a need and yet uh, ignoring that need. This is where our faith makes a difference in the way that we live. And it's to furnish or add, it's kind of like vitamins. You know, you can, you, you know, right? It's, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, I, I want to get into whatever the cultural definition of shape is. I, I prefer, you know, I like my shape. and <laughs> But it's, it's, you get into shape. And, and you know, I started exercising, um, you know, about 10 years ago. It was like 290 pounds. And I lost 60, 70 pounds in a year and a half. or did so, and, and, I, and I learned a lot. I wanted to go, really... I wanted to just exercise and eat Blue Bell ice cream. Okay. I wanted to eat whatever I wanted, <laughs> but I found out that I needed That's to what we supplement. All do. <laughs> yeah, I, wanted, I had to supplement that exercise with good eating practices. Yeah. And those two went together to get to, you know, the kingdom of God on earth, to live into this kingdom of God. And so what Peter is actually saying here is that, Faith, your personal faith, it is never in a box. It is never hidden under a bushel. Some, someone might say, well, that's my personal faith. And I, it's personal for a reason because I keep it to myself. There is no option for that. And Peter's not just the first person that says that. No. There is no option. Jesus said, people will know you are my disciples because of your love for each other. Right. Right? Right. I mean, so your faith, our faith, what we believe about God's work through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection today, celebrating as Easter people, the empty tomb, there has got to be this connection and belief that faith never was meant to be a game of solitary. No, it not was, at all. It was to be lived into. Jesus didn't call Levi or Matthew, uh, the tax collector from the Sea of Galilee and said, hey, come follow me and we're gonna go sit in a room. <laughs> and we're gonna go study the Old Testament scriptures together and we're gonna translate the Hebrew to Greek or to the whatever, or English. we're going to memorize it. And we're we're start, get, I'm starting a club. Yeah. I'm going to get 12 of our friend, your friends together. And we're, we're all going to sit around and have Bible study together. No. What is just the purpose? Us, yeah. of it? It's not just to stay inside of us. It is to be lived into when we're at the grocery store. That's right. And wherever we find ourselves. That's right. And that, you know, that is exactly what Titus is. Chapter three of Titus is, is you have this, you, you've been given this. Remember here, here, Titus, you've got to tell these people, you've got to tell these, remind them of this doctrine. And that's one thing that I did learn that the difference of doctrine and theology and what that means. And, and, And so doctrine is the things that we know that Jesus said himself, that Jesus said, here's what my father says. Here's what my father thinks. Here is this. And then we know what, you know, the disciples have said about him. And those things, that's the doctrine. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, if I've gotten this mixed up. And theology is more of the 
predestination, chosen, the elect. Um, the doctrine of Jesus is what saves you. That's where your salvation is. It's what you believe about God and what, what you believe about what he said and believing in him and knowing that he came. That's the important parts that he sent his son. Your theology is never going to save you. How you run your church, what church you choose to go to, that's never going to be your salvation. You're absolutely right. And, and I'm reminded, Emily, of a, a book by C.S. Lewis. And, and, and it's, an, it's a good read. It's, it's an allegory. It's called The Great Divorce. And it's a journey of this man to get into heaven. And he has these conversations with people. And just look for the one about the bishop. This bishop doesn't make it to heaven because he was so gravitated towards, he leaned into the the academic to know, yeah. and, and it just became head knowledge to him and not right. heart knowledge. And it's a great conversation that he witnesses in there. And that's the great divorce. Well, and, and too, I mean, when you look at, we all want to say, love your neighbor right now. We all want to say, you got to love your neighbor. Well, yeah, you can love your neighbor and still say, what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I don't agree with you. This is this is not the way God said for yeah, you to God, live. Do you know my neighbor? Yeah. You don't know my neighbor, right? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> a friend of mine, because a friend of mine posted something this morning, and and it was like, you know, love your neighbor. So you should go force feed them vegetables because vegetables are good for you. <laughs> Make sure your neighbors are getting their vegetables. Make sure that you hold them down and brush their teeth because dental hygiene is also important. It's good for you. You know, and so, and I really made me think, and I was like, well, that's true. I mean, because we are so quick to say, it's almost like we have these two spectrums that we're just on the extremes right now. We're on the extremes of love your neighbor and that excuses every wrong they've ever done because you have to love them. And you just have to let them do because you're loving them. And then we've also got the other side of the coin of the what everyone's calling cancel culture. And this is different from me. And it's I disagree with everything that's being said. So I'm just going to cut them off and not and, and try to get them to go away. I'm going to just rip to shreds everything they have to say and not give them the benefit of the doubt and not try to meet them halfway and not try to reconcile any of these things that we have, you know, that we don't have in common. Yeah. And this is, this has been a custom throughout church history. Yeah. That we will have, I mean, Luther, the Reformation, you start to see that the pendulum is over here on one side and then the pendulum gets swung through a reformation to the opposite side and the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Living in that tension, right? And we find ourselves doing that in our churches, in our Christian life today, that the pendulum is all the way over here for social justice and then all the way on the other side. But there is some, you know, some truth in the middle where we live in the tension of loving our neighbor or as James ends his book, the Christian is the one who cares for the children and the widows and the orphans, right? Right. So there's this, this 
tension that we live into. I mean, think of James chapter two, verse 14 and following where he says, look, let me just lay it out for you. James says, faith without works is faith that is dead. Right. Okay. I mean, you show me a, a faith without works. I'll show you a faith that's dead. And Jesus in Matthew seven says, you're going to know a tree by its fruit, fruit, right? The Sermon on the Mountain, Matthews five, six, and seven, those are not disconnected thoughts. That is a thought that kind of flows through. And so you have him then going from that, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And then he goes to this section where he talks about, I never knew you. So he's now saying, you'll know a tree by his fruit. Now he says, okay, you're the tree. Let me see your fruit. If I don't, I don't know you. Yeah. Because there's, there is this very real teaching to care, to live into the caring for the well-being of others. And at the same time, there's this very real truth about who God is, about his graciousness and his faithfulness and his steadfast love and his patience for us. And, and I think those two have to be in tension. And if not, one side of the pendulum, if you're on one side, you cancel out in our culture of canceling, you cancel out the other folks and say they don't matter. And if yeah. you're here, you, you cancel it out. You, yeah. and, and what we do is we find ourselves on opposite ends and again, factioned and ineffective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely ineffective. And that's the whole point in Titus is why, you know, Paul's telling Titus, you have got to find these elders that are blameless, that are above reproach. You have to find the elders of this church that are going to set the example and set the tone of the church. Because if they're out doing X, Y, and Z, everyone else is going to go, that guy? That's what I'm supposed to be doing? I don't, that's awful. I mean, I'm not doing that. What, you know, the Chattahoochee starts real clean and pure. How <laughs> to Helen, right? Isn't that where it comes from? Out those North Georgia mountains. And then it's fine probably. And then it gets to Atlanta and oh, it's yucky. Oh, and we get the rest of that. So what's filtering out so that by the time it gets to the Gulf, sheesh, there's a lot of going on in there. And people that, because I'm not getting in it. I don't know why these people want to raft on it, because it's disgusting in my opinion. I baptized two people in the Chattahoochee River. <laughs> I've seen it, and I think that is awesome. Well, but I'm also like, wouldn't I, be me. <laughs> I got to tell you, I had waders on up to my neck. <laughs> Basically, I, the, I thought the same thing at the Jordan River when we were in it yes. in, in Israel. I thought because we went to the the uh, river head where it yes, starts. Yes, and what Beautiful. it looked like there. And what it looked like where they people were getting baptized. That's right. Dip in and, and, and get some out. It was cool. It was super cool. But I stood there going, yeah. you can't see anything in that water. Uh-uh. Now, see, y'all are getting my, my fear of my, the waters coming out. But we, we come out of the purest, best source. Yeah. And we just get dirty. In the, as we go through everyday life. And that's why it's so important that we have these leaders that, that are above reproach and, and, and because they set the tone. Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, it would be best if, you know, every leader we have was that way, but specifically the church. Yeah. And because it, it does make you completely ineffective. We do live in a broken world. 
And we do live in a world where where we are as Christian leaders, given that encouragement to be above reproach. But that doesn't mean perfect. Right. What it means is that we recognize and we we deal with it. We're transparent with ourselves and with the Holy Spirit. The practice of self-examination is just not during Lent. It's asking that question, now, why did I say it that way? Why did I feel anger when I heard that? Yeah. And, and to really um, give yourself the opportunity to grow from, from those moments. And Peter, he says, for these qualities that he lists there are, are yours and they're increasing and, and they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. And then in verse 9, right before verse 10 that we started with, Peter goes to the negative. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he or she is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed, he or she was cleansed from his or her former sins. This is the same wording that Paul uses. For example, he writes to the church in Ephesus, calls them saints. Yeah. And then in chapter two, he, he talks about, have you found yourself walking still in your sins? I mean, we all have been made alive, this but God moment. We have been made alive yeah. and, and live into that. And then he goes, therefore, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your faith, yeah. to confirm, to build upon what God has done and live into that foundation, live into that, those virtues, live into that self-control, that, that love and that uh, affection that we live into. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, you know, upon these things that we build, our God will test. And that which is built on the foundation of Christ has built out of wood, hay, or stubble when it's tested with fire and it burns but that which is tested with fire that is built on that foundation of Jesus Christ with precious stones, gold and silver, and that will last. Yeah. And so that self-reflection, that self-examination and living into. And, and when just, just one, one, one next verse here, this is because it ties so closely to verse five, where he says, make every effort to supplement your faith. Okay. Something we do. The same Greek word is used in 11 for in this way, after we are diligent to confirm for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. Same Greek word, supplement and provide same Greek word. Hmm. The context is now, this is not something you do. The context is this is something God does. And so we always go back to that foundation. We always go back to that which God has already built that does not need any addition to it. It's not like we have to take God's foundation and say, you know what, God, I'd really like the laundry room moved over there. And I'd like this little side room to have a bigger bedroom. We, we don't add on to that foundation. Yeah. We build upon the foundation that God has given us. And what that is same that footprint. That same footprint. And what is it? Jesus died for your sins. And this was a beautiful expression and demonstration of God's love for 
you. Now, set aside everything you don't understand and live into that. Live in that. And tell me what difference that would make in your life if you just gravitated towards God's gracious love and steadfast faithfulness, his mercies that are new every day. That's right. Well, and that coming from there, from that spring, of course you're going to do good works. Of course you're going to strive for virtue and strive for putting on that new. That ought to be our motivation for everything for every day. We ought to wake up every morning saying, Lord, you did that. Holy moly, you did that. Now, how am I going to act? How am I going to move forward in my day with that? And it doesn't supplement to what God has done. It builds upon what God has done. Yeah. That Jehovah Jireh, which is the Lord is my provider. Do you know, do you know that little song? I do. That was back <laughs> in the 80s. and I remember that song. Oh, my grace is sufficient for you. So here comes the Holy Spirit because these supplements and they will be provided for us. Here we are. Everything we need is going to be provided for us. And so here we get the Holy Spirit. You know, when Jesus says the counselor or someone else is coming, that's going to help you in this. You're going to have this. Well, that's how we do it. That's how you live this life. That's how you wake up gracious for the grace that you've been given. You approach it from a different vantage point. Yeah. And you mentioned that verse in 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient. Yeah. Paul has this thorn in his eyes, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He has this thorn and we don't know what it is. He prays for God and basically doesn't get an answer. I mean, look, if Paul doesn't get an answer from God, it kind of makes me feel okay when I hear a little bit of silence. Yeah. Kind of gives me a little bit. It's like, okay, Paul, I thought you had the, you know, the, the bat phone to Commissioner Gordon's. That's right. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon has <laughs> to the bat cave, you know, the little red phone under the glass. Yeah. <laughs> that phone rings. It goes red and God says, shh, everybody, it's, it's Paul. Paul. We got to answer. I got to answer this, guys. <laughs> but he didn't. He writes in, uh, as he tells a story in Second Corinthians 12, 9, he says, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Man, we'll we'll live into that another week. But the lesson that connects to what we're talking about in Titus and 2 Peter, the lesson here is, now what did Paul do with that? What change did that make in Paul? The lesson is is the end of verse 9 going into 10. He says, therefore, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, he just didn't hear that and say, okay, God, whatever, you know? He actually lived into it. Yeah. And it's this repeating. This is not something, the confirmation of your faith is not something that's done once. It is done again and again and again and again. Yeah. Every day. It has to be. And realizing what our weakness is also makes us more reliant on that power. Amen. That we get from the Lord. 
Amen. For those who are listening, we really are glad that you joined us today. And once again, we encourage you to reach out to us. If you have any questions or uh, anything you'd like to add or a topic or a passage that you'd like to listen to in the future, we'd be honored to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at spumcolumbus.com. God bless you all.